0: Is that good? Yep. All right. Hi, Mom. <laughs> oh, I see what you were doing there. Everybody wants to be on screen. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and get started with our class this evening. I'm exceptionally thankful that you guys came out. Uh, You may have driven in the worst storm we've seen in a while, uh, but all has recovered. And I was driving, actually, the most dangerous part of my drive wasn't the rain. It was all of a sudden it switched from rain to sunshine, and I was blinding. Um, So, but in any case, I'm grateful. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. seems crazy for a little bit there. All right, well, I'm thankful to be here tonight. We're going to be working through 1 Peter 2:19 uh 9 to 17. And if you have the notes from last time, they're actually still the same notes because we didn't quite get to these. And that's what we're planning on working through this time. Uh, there are some notes back in that corner there, if anyone needs those. Uh, is there an electronic resource for you guys to get these notes of some nature? Do they... All uh, right, because I was thinking maybe at the end of the class, I could post these somewhere so that you could have the entirety of them in one place. I I don't know. Okay, so he does email those. All right. All right. Well, that's good to hear. All right, open your Bibles with me to First Peter then. First Peter, let's... Uh, let's... Good Lord, with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll jump right into this. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we read in your word that you've loved us with an everlasting love, that those you have called to be your own are secure in your Son. They need not fear, whether that be the threatenings of our world or whether that be our own sinfulness that remains within us. For Father, we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one, for whom has given to us his righteousness. Beyond this, we have been given the very Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of coming judgment, who changes us and makes us new so that we long after to do the right thing and gives us then the ability to accomplish it. All of this is because of your work on our behalf. And so as we consider today the blessed situation you've placed us in, we recognize that we are here not because we were better than others. We are here because your grace was that great. And so help us to consider that grace and especially consider how we can take this word to a world that does not yet know you. For as Peter indicates, those who do not know you are yet without hope in this world. So help us, Father, uh, to look into the mirror of your word today, having looked into it to uh, reorganize ourselves in accordance with what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is where we're going to pick up this time. And the last time we were together, we had finished 2, 1 to 8. And, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about those pa- that passage here in just a moment. <clears throat> uh, let's just reorientate ourselves for the entirety of the text. What has Peter been doing up to this point? He's highlighted for us who we are in Christ. Remember all the way from the beginning, what was the title he gave us? What did he start with? We are elect... Exiles, elect exiles. And I argued earlier on, and I hope that uh, this is being fleshed out such that you're agreeing with it, but I, I argued early on that Peter essentially organizes his text along that line. Sometimes he's emphasizing election, the blessedness of who we are in Christ. But sometimes he emphasizes the exile. That is, the ostracization, is that a word? I'm going to make it a word. Um, Of of us as believers in a world in which we don't fit. And I think you see this swaying back and forth that Peter keeps doing within the text. Uh, and, And mostly in the first two chapters, it's been an emphasis on the blessedness. And we're going to find in... Chapters 3 and following, in fact, in the end of chapter 2, we're going to find that Peter's going to turn that to some of the more exile side of things. But the passage we're going to look at today actually finishes his consideration of how blessed it is to be in Christ. And so, uh, looking back at chapter 2, verse 4, because 8 to 10 is really a conclusion to that, or 9 to 10 are really a conclusion to that, He says, as you come to him, that is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, see, I lay on Zion a stone, a chosen, precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him, he will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, well, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, nevertheless, the stone the builders rejected, it's still become the cornerstone. And it's become a stone that that causes people to stumble and a rock that causes them to fall. And here's where we ended last time. They stumble. That is, those who do not believe, they stumble because they disobey the word or the message. Which is also what they were destined for. So, we argued last time that Peter was making this balance uh, between, or this comparison between believers and unbelievers. He says, for you, there is no shame. For the one who believes in the rock, remember, he's, he's picturing Jesus as a rock using Old Testament illustrations and he says, this rock is like a wave. Depending on how you approach it, depends on how things are going to go. Now, we were just recently in Florida, and, uh, you know, if you're, if you're ever trying to be on a board out in the ocean on, on the waves, how are things going to go if your board is facing the waves? Maybe nobody's ever done this, but it goes pretty well because you just, you kind of go over the waves. What happens if you're not quite paying attention and your board is sideways when the wave comes at you? Total destruction. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, and so here I am sitting on the beach, because in February, the closest I got to the ocean was my toe. Uh, but I'm watching my girls out there in the ocean, and, and one of the fun parts is when they don't quite see a, a wave coming. <laughs> and so I'm just watching, oh, this one's going to be it. Wham! And then, you know, they get up and, uh, and all is well. But um, those waves can be a source of fun for them, or they can be a source of devastation for them. And it depends on how they meet that wave, Right. And in the same way, uh, the stone that is Christ, it depends on how you meet him. Do you come to him to believe in him? And if you do, then he becomes a stone in which you find security. But if you come to him disbelieving, then he becomes a stone over which you stumble and fall. And Peter's point here is, Despite what people think of Jesus, whether they believe in Him or not, nevertheless, He became the cornerstone. This is God's building program. And so now they've got a choice. Believe in Him, be built on Him, and all will be well. Do not believe on Him, stumble over Him, and be crushed. This is the relationship that we have with the stone. And so, he then notes, for those who believe, uh, he says, the stone is precious and we like stones are precious but then the, the thing I want us to emphasize here is verse 7 now to you who believe this stone is precious and then he says this um, oh where is it um, oh, well I'm looking oh it's, it's the very end of 6 actually <clears throat> because he says this the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame all right, now, you and I live in a Western world, all right? And that means that we tend to think in categories of guilt and innocence. In many Asian countries and many Eastern countries, uh, they think in terms of shame, honor. And it's a whole different way of thinking about things. Uh, <clears throat> We don't quite understand why it is that there are such things as honor killings in families. We think, what's that about? Somebody's guilty of something, why would you kill them? Uh, Or honor suicides. These are quite frequent in the Eastern world, where people will do something shameful that will bring dishonor to their family, and then they will actually commit suicide in order to restore honor to their family. And that makes no sense to us, but it's the way that a lot of people think. In First Peter, they were an honor-shame culture. Imagine, because remember, Peter's audience are believers who were converted from pagan the, their pagan culture. How do you think they were viewed by their community? Yeah, they, they were dishonorable. They were shameful because they were rejecting, whether it be the gods of uh, the ancient peoples, the, the family gods that we've always embraced, whether that be Rome itself. Remember we talked a number of weeks back about how uh, the imperial cult was a way to build society around the emperor and indicating divine status to him. Christians couldn't do that. But of course what that meant was if If your community had a bunch of Christians, it meant it had a bunch of people who weren't showing right honors to Caesar, and then Caesar isn't going to show honors to this city, and it's going to be a problem. So here, from a societal vantage point, these readers are are feeling the weight of dishonor for having followed Christ. And Peter comes along, and he says, for those who believe, in the rock, in this stone, in Jesus, there will never be dishonor. And of course, he's not talking about temporally. He's not talking about in this life. Because of course, there might be. What he's saying is, eschatologically, eternally, what actually matters, right? When we get to what actually matters, there will be no dishonor. In fact, there will be honor for those who believe. Because... At the end of the day, day, uh, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that because Jesus has taken the cross, because he's risen from the dead and received a name that is above every other name, what's going to happen at the end of time? (coughs) Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're just doing it before time, right? And... uh, and so the honor is for those who believe, Peter's point is. So then he makes the contrast then. Because, and he never makes it explicit, but, but the point is there. So if the honor is for those who believe, what is remaining for those who do not believe? They're in the dishonorable position. Despite the fact that they are trying to put dishonor upon you for having believed in Christ. They're in the dishonorable position, seen from an eternal perspective. And they stumble. They trip over this stone. Why? Because they disobey the word. And Peter's going to go back to this numerous times. Paul goes back to this Romans chapter 9. Why is it that the Jews did not believe in Christ? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, it's because they didn't believe the word. You don't believe the word, you don't believe the stone. And he says here, that they did not believe the word, and therefore they did not believe the stone, and therefore they stumbled as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you, but you. All right, so now he's just talked about the dishonorable situation of those who reject the message and therefore reject the stone, and now he says, but you. And so he's including you and me and those who believe in Christ in a different category. But you, what are you? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, so this is how Peter concludes this section, and that's where we want to begin today. So, Peter turns it to us, and he says, Now I want you to remember who you are. And friend, I, th- I really think, you know, we live in a community today that talks a lot about personal identity. Be yourself. Be who you are. And most of the time I hear that, I think it's, it's touting um, garbage, really. It's embrace your sinful Uh, tendency and run with it as fast as you can well that's self-destructive let's not do that but there are times where when scripture calls us and says this is who you are that we need to say this is who i am and embrace that and run with it and so here's what it says but you are what are you first an elect people you're an elect people now i'm going to have us Take a look at these passages from the Old Testament because every one of them comes from the Old Testament. So keeping your finger here, flip back to the book of Isaiah with me. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 20. He says this, the wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland, to give drink to my people, my chosen. We could translate that, my chosen people. And then he goes on. Why do I think that this is actually the passage he's referring back to? It's because of this. He goes on in the next um, verse there, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. Now, if you remember verses 9 and 10 we just read, that's exactly what he says about us. So this is the passage he's referring to. My people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself. Out of all the nations of the world, you remember back in Genesis? There's lots of nations. And God says, I choose Abraham. And Abraham's going to have children. And they're going to be divine children in this sense that they're going to be a gift from me. And those are going to be my chosen people to whom my name should be praised. All right, now, here in the New Testament, here's what Peter says To Gentiles, to us, you are an elect people, a chosen people. And elect, uh, we've seen this language numerous times throughout the text already. The, The focus here is on the fact that God chose us. Not that we chose God, but that God chose us. We are a chosen people. Uh, so let me just mention here rather quickly uh, that when when I when we talk about the Old Testament, and each of these phrases that he uses actually were originally used for Israel and then now used for us. Don't hear me as saying that we have become Israel, because I don't think that's true. God made promises to Israel. He said that he's going to restore Israel, he's going to save Israel, and he hasn't done that. And here's the thing, God keeps his promises. So he's still going to do that. So we've not become Israel, but I think this is what Paul's, or Peter's saying here. He's saying, we have come into the same sort of relationship that Israel had with God that they were a chosen people selected out of all the nations, we too are a chosen people selected out of all the nations. In fact, that word people that he uses here refers to a family. It can be used in reference to an elect family. We could have translated it that way. You are an elect family, which fits quite nicely with the language Peter's used frequently here about the fact that we um, we are born again into a new family. And so, we are an elect family. And I, you know, I, I don't think we think about that as often as we ought to. That the people in this room right here are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul, in his comments in the pastoral epistles, tells Timothy, Timothy, consider uh, the younger men to be like brothers. Consider the younger women to be like sisters. Consider the older men to be like fathers and the older women to be like mothers. So in the relationships in the family, Paul is saying, treat them like family. Uh, And and I know some might say, well, um, you know, the way this family treats each other is better than my own family. But if, you're, if you were able to grow up in a, in a good family, that provides a really helpful way of thinking about the church body, how ought I to think about the brothers and sisters here. So we're an elect family. All right, second, he tells us not only are you an elect family, but you'll notice he says you are a royal priesthood. Now that's an interesting phrase. In fact, it can be translated in two different ways. If you've got a different translation of Scripture, maybe it said something different. It could be translated, you are a kingdom of priests. It could be translated, you are a royal priesthood. Now, in defense of the translation, kingdom of priests, is the use of the same phrase in the Old Testament in Exodus 19.6, and indeed in the book of Revelation. So let's look back at Exodus 19.6, because I mentioned we're going to be looking at the sources. For Peter's four phrases here. Exodus 19.6. He says this, uh, starting in verse 5, just to give the context. Now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant. So here he's talking to the Israelites. They've just come out of Egypt. And he's giving them the law. And he says, and, and you know Exodus 20 is going to be the the Ten Commandments, right? So, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession although the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation by the way we're going to read in just a second we are also a holy nation this is where he gets it from these are the words you were to speak to the Israelites so so Peter is getting from this Old Testament passage that we too are a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood. So how should we translate this? As you note, the NIV translates it as royal priesthood. Uh, I think that is the best translation, and here's the key reason I think this is why this is the best translation. Uh, Peter communicates three other characteristics here. Notice, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. But if I change it, you are a chosen people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, God's special possession. We no longer have an adjective and a noun, an adjective and a noun, an adjective and a noun. It changes the structure of the passage. And so I think the best thing here to say is royal priesthood. Now, does that deny the fact that we are a kingdom of priests? I don't think so. Because remember, he's just said we were built into this a temple to be what? Priests. And I would make the argument. I don't know where uh, where your pastor falls on this, but I would argue that there is a sense in which we are presently uh, experiencing, uh, we have been translated, Paul says in Colossians, we've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. So the kingdom of God has not yet been established on this earth, but we are citizens of that kingdom even though we are not there. I think that's what Peter's saying. You are exiles. You're not in your homeland, the kingdom, but you are kingdom citizens awaiting that homeland. All right? So here then, we are a kingdom of priests. But then, I think, as well, royal priesthood indicates that we are priests and that, in fact, we are members of the royal family. And that makes sense, too. So in in either case, the suggestion is that we are priests. Yes. And that we are related to the king. All right. So what about the third phrase? You are a holy nation. We already looked at this passage in Exodus 19, 6. You are a holy nation. Now, let's consider that phrase for just a minute. Imagine that the Romans got a hold of this document. What do you think they would think of that phrase? <laughs> I, you know, how did the Romans keep their control? Well, they kept their control by, you know, pretty tight, tight controls on things. They had their thumb on everything. And the moment there was a, just an inkling, that there's somebody rising up to challenge Caesar, snuff it out. And so here comes along these Christians, and they say, Oh, we're a distinct holy nation over here. All right. um, these are fighting words, frankly. But Peter can't help but say them. Because this is true. We are a distinct nation. And we're going to see this in chapter th- or a little bit later because he's going to develop what it means to be a holy nation living among another nation. Because we friends are not really dual citizens, though in some sense you might think of it that way. I would argue that I am a citizen of the kingdom of God who has been who obeys the American government because my, my king tells me to. And that order is really important. And we'll talk about why that is uh, in, the, in the next class session. But the point is this, we are a distinct nation. And I think it is a tragic error in the history of Christianity that any nation has attempted to produce a Christian nation on this, on this soil, right? Um, I, this is my own personal opinion. Despite the fact that the United States was very much based upon biblical principles, I would not call this a Christian nation. Um, There's going to be one Christian nation, and that is the kingdom when Jesus comes and establishes it. And we long, we wait for that. Now, there may be a predominance of Christians within a nation, and that certainly will influence and affect the way that that nation operates and runs. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, But, you know, for us to say, well, this is a Christian nation, I'm just not sure Scripture gives us reason to try and establish a Christian nation. And if you look back through history, every time that has been attempted, it's caused great harm uh, rather, than, rather than the benefit that I think most people attempt to do. And we can man, boy, could I jump into that in terms of... I want to know which nation actually tried it. Oh, well, Kelvin's Geneva um, in particular, uh, but, most, uh, but Europe... Um, you know uh, yeah i mean if you go back to the reformation period almost all those countries were attempting to establish um christian nations and the problem is you can't legislate conversion and that's that's the problem because then all of a sudden you were born into denmark and you were a christian but you weren't because you can't be born a christian uh but but all of a sudden what that does is it corrupts Christianity because then Christianity becomes a political thing rather than the thing it really is, which is a spiritual thing. So I, I could jump into that and in political philosophy and all that, but, um, but I like your pastor too much and he might not like me afterwards. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know where he falls and in, in all that sort of thing, so, uh, so I'll avoid it, all right? That's, that's, that's the best thing you can do, I think. Um, but... Here, here's what Peter's saying about the, the church. The church is a Christian nation. It's just a nation that doesn't have its own governance right now. Waiting for our borders. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we've got a king, and we do follow his, his constitution, uh, but his constitution says this, and, and we're going to see it right down here. Uh, notice um, verse 13 of chapter 2, "...submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority." whether to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. So I don't think it's accidental that quickly after having said you you are a holy nation, he then says, by the way, here's what God tells you right now. While you're in exile, while you're on this journey, obey the governing authorities over you. Okay, so we'll talk more about that at a future time, but... So, what are we? We're a chosen people, chosen by God, a chosen family, really. We are a royal priesthood. We have direct access to God through Christ, and we can offer sacrifices of praise to Him. We are a holy nation. That is, we are a sanctified nation. We're set apart for God. We are a people that, though from the nations have established a nation together. If you want to talk about a melting pot, we often talk about that in terms of the United States of America, the kingdom of God will be a melting pot. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be there, according to the scriptures. All right, so then he gives a a final thing. Um, He says, you are a people for his possession. You are a people for his possession, or as the NIV here puts it, uh, you are God's special possession. Chosen out of many others that could have been, but you are God's special possession. And again, this goes back to Exodus 19.5, which we read just a moment ago. A couple of other passages use this exact same language, Deuteronomy 4.20, 14.2, and then even in the New Testament, Titus 2.14. And so Peter's indicating here that readers, and by implication you and me as modern believers, are like Israel and that God has chosen us to be his special people. Why did he do this? Why did he make us these four, why did he give us these four incredible blessings? He tells us here in this passage, you are all of these things, so that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Why are you a chosen people? Why are you a holy nation? Why are you a kingdom of priests? Why are you God's special possession? It's so that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Obviously, the idea here is that this is verbal, right? Can you declare the praises if you never say a word? No. The answer is no. Instead, what are we to do? We are to tell the nations. One of the things I think can be easily missed about the letter of 1 Peter is that it is a letter Focused significantly on evangelism. Why is he calling us to obedience in the ways in which he's about to call us to obedience? He tells us in 2.11 and 12. So that by your obedience, others will see God. And seeing God, they might be converted to him. And here he says, you've become this special people so that. You can proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. How are other people going to know about the light if we don't share? So, uh, your pastor actually just came on uh, this morning and spoke at our chapel at DBTS, so Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. And he spoke on uh, Acts chapter six. Apparently, he's going through Acts, and so he was doubling up for us. And made the application perfect for for our students. Really, really enjoyable. But he was talking there about the fact that God has given to the church a commission. A great commission. To take his name and to proclaim it. Could God have spread his name in some other way? Absolutely. I mean, we were driving today. And uh, as we were driving, I, I mentioned the blinding sun coming out reflecting off the rain. But one of the other things that that made, because when we were driving, I was looking to the right and it was just pure beautiful. And on the left was just pure black, right? Because uh, the storm had passed. Exactly. And so as I'm driving, I say, girls, there's the rainbow. And of course, they wanted me to drive that direction, but I couldn't because I was going that way. Um, they wanted that pot of gold. They, they still think it exists there. And then I was saying, well, no, if we drove there, I don't think it would be there anymore. Because I, I think it moves, but I don't know. D- does it differ based upon where you are, how you see it? Or I, I don't know. But that's what I told them uh, with some confidence. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So in any case, you know, could God have put in the rainbow this, this verbal message about who he is? Well, I do think the rainbow is a message. And it says something about God. But it's not a verbal message. So, he left that to us. He left it to us. So here's the thing. Are, are you a member of a holy nation? Are you God's special possession? If you're these things, then are you proclaiming the goodness of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Because that's what he did it for. And I trust that that's true of us. So, uh, and and by the way, this language of gulling us out of darkness into a marvelous light, remember Isaiah 9-2? You know this passage from, um, from the Gospels, actually, because it says, those who are in Galilee, in the land of darkness, have seen a great light. It's referring to Jesus coming and dwelling in Galilee. And now we have seen a great light. We've been called into this wonderful light. So let's proclaim his goodness. And then he concludes this with verse 10 here. <clears throat> he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So here's the, the point. Once, everyone in this room were not related to each other at all. No, I don't know. Maybe you actually are related to each other uh, I'm still. I'm. I. You know. I've been at Inner City Baptist Church for six years, and I'm still fighting out relationships that go deeply in the church. Oh yeah, they're my second cousin, and you know. So, maybe there's that kind of a thing going on here. I don't know. Uh, But most likely, for the majority of us in this room, we had literally no connection to each other prior to Christ. There was. There was no. No relation. But here he says, once you were not a people. You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not recipients of mercy, but now you have received mercy. By the way, that quotation comes from Hosea. If you remember, Hosea calls one of his kids uh, by the name, not having mercy or something like that. And then uh, reflecting on how Israel has indeed experienced mercy. Those Old Testament prophets, I tell you, they went through quite an ordeal. Um, if you've ever studied uh, the word pictures that God called some of those Old Testament prophets to, it's quite, quite interesting. All right, so <clears throat> here we are. Here's, here's what he says about us. So you've not been given over to shame but to honor and here's all the things that you are you're, you are blessed in Christ so proclaim that blessing on the housetops alright that leads us to two eleven to 12 and I'm going to make the argument that 2 and 11 to 12 is a turning point in the book uh, this is the turning point from uh, you know if you want if you like how Paul often does it. He does it in Romans. He does it in Ephesians. From the indications of who you are to the indications of what you should do, that, that's often a pattern. And that's what Peter does here. Now he's going to turn and he's going to say, okay, let me remind you who you are. And then we're going to turn to what are we going to have to do. So 2.11-12, to 12, let's read the text and then we'll walk through it. Dear friends, he says, I urge you, I I plead with you, as foreigners and exiles, so he's reminding us who we are, to abstain, here's what we should do, to abstain, to reject sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Okay, so again, I'm, not, I'm arguing that this is a turning point in the book. He's been talking about our identity up to this point. This is what he's been dwelling on. You are, you are, you are. And now he's saying, okay, in light of who you are, you are exiles and foreigners. So in light of that, what should you be doing? Well, he tells us two things. Abstain from the passions of the flesh and pursue honorable deeds. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, pursue honorable deeds, and all of this in the service of showing to unbelievers who God is. All right, so let's walk through it. He first calls them beloved. And the question is this. Uh, now, the... the NIV translates it, dear friends, but it actually is a statement, loved ones. And here's my question to you. In light of the context so far, when Peter says loved ones, who loves them? Yeah, so the NIV translation takes it as Peter loving them. Because he says beloved So the idea seems to be that Peter's saying to them, hey, I love you guys, and so dear friends is kind of the equivalent. But I actually think that the point here is not beloved like dear friends, but you who are loved by God, you who have seen God's elective love poured out on you, so what is now the requirement of you? So then he says, as sojourners and exiles, as these people who are foreigners in the land in which you find yourselves. Now, I I won't walk through this again, because we did it at the beginning of the class uh, a, a number of weeks back. But this is where Peter is addressing believers as those who are foreigners in the world in which they currently reside. We don't fit here, because we've been transformed by the Spirit. And it's sort of like... If you ever have gone overseas somewhere and stayed for any length of period, length of time, you just don't fit, you feel it, you know it. and even if they speak English, so if you went to, to you know United Kingdom or something and you stayed for a month, you would feel like a foreigner. You say, "Well, why? I mean they speak English, yeah, kind of <laughs> but but it's, it's also just like different social expectations, different, different a lot of things. And, and you can even get that a little bit here in the United States. You know, uh, when, when you go down to, uh, to the south and people are all saying hi to you, and you're like, this is, this is weird, right? <laughs> then you get in the habit and you go back up north and you say hi to people, and they're like, what's that person talking about? <laughs> I'm just trying to walk on my day here, right? So, and I'm convinced it has something to do with exposure to the sun, all right? It makes people happier. I I don't know. but, um, (laughs) But you feel like a foreigner, and that's what Peter's saying here about us. He says that you are foreigners, you're exiles, you're outside of your homeland, and you feel like a stranger. So, beloved by God... As you are in this period of exile and foreignness, what should you do? He says first, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And this is a good reminder for us that when we become believers, God doesn't take away the passions of the flesh. And I know you hear this sometimes. You know, when I became a believer, all those desires, they just went away. Well, good for you. (laughs) <laughs> that never happened to me, right? Um, and so Peter's saying, look, as those who've been loved by God, you've been called out, you've been changed, you've been made new so that you're a foreigner in this land. Nevertheless, here's what you have to do. You have to fight against the passions that arise within your own flesh. It's still going to be there. And you've got to fight. You've got to fight every day. Man, does selfishness like pop up? You know, you're like, oh, yeah. Uh, you give yourself the humble award one day. And uh, you realize that the actual giving of the humble award indicated that you weren't humble, right? <laughs> but, um, but you realize that no matter how high you've scaled the conquering, that it's always there, right? And here Peter says, here's what we have to do. We have to abstain from the passions of the flesh, Peter doesn't clarify what those passions of the flesh are. We could turn to Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5. Paul says, the lusts of the flesh are evident. And then he mentions two major types of sin. He mentions sexual things. And then he mentions relational tensions. Uh, That is, we grumble at each other, we complain, we are not satisfied with what we have. These are all things that are natural to the flesh. Who do we think of first all the time? <laughs> we're thinking of ourselves, right? Uh, me, myself, and I, right? I know uh, the acronym is supposed to be Jesus, other you. Uh, but we're so often Yages, right? <laughs> you, other Jesus, right? Uh, and hopefully others is in there. Maybe you're you Joes, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> Messing the whole thing up. But the point is that we, you know, the the desires of the flesh are always present with us. And Peter says here, we must abstain from them. The idea of abstaining means that it's going to put pressure on us to go a certain direction, and we refuse to go that way. To abstain, you know, we we talk a lot about abstention. I'm an abstainer from alcohol. It means that I'm not going to partake of it. I'm not going to to go that direction. And that's what Peter says. We must look at sin and the things that used to characterize our life. We must say no to them. And this all because it affects our testimony to unbelievers. We're going to see that in just a moment. Notice he says something else about these Passions of the flesh, he says, they wage war against the soul. So this assumes that if you're a believer, then there is a war going on inside you. And I think that there are some sanctification models and there's some hope that some believers have that if they'll reach this level of maturity, then they'll get beyond the struggle. And actually, all that we do is we dig deeper into the struggle. We discover more and more how deep our problems are as we're seeking to solve them by means of the gifts of the Spirit. Nevertheless, it's a battle. It's a war. And this is why Paul talks about, um, in Galatians chapter 5, he says, you've got two options for your life. Are you going to do the works of the flesh... Or are you going to follow the fruit of the Spirit? And the language there is fascinating to me because the works of the flesh, those are the things that naturally I do. They're the works of the flesh. But then the fruit of the Spirit, I can't make fruit, right? Um, The fruit of the Spirit is something that God, the Spirit does in me and produces fruit in me. And so Peter here though is saying, look, you may not, be able necessarily to produce the fruit in yourself. I think you can cultivate and fertilize and and all that. But, But you can't produce the fruit, but you can do this. You can abstain from the lust of the flesh, which wage war against the spirit who's at work in you. So we cannot produce fruit in our lives, but we can do that which prevents fruit in our lives. I can't actually, so I've got this apple tree in my backyard. It's fantastic. It produces the best apples. Love it. It only produces fruit every other year. I don't get it. I don't know what's going on with that. Maybe that's normal. First year we've moved there, I said, that's the ugliest tree ever. Maybe I should cut the thing down. And we didn't. And then the next year we're like, look at all these apples. This is incredible. What a blessing. And so I've got to go out there, and and I just did it this last weekend, um, trimmed the apple tree. And, uh, you know, so that it, you know, doesn't get the wrong branches and all that. I can't make it produce fruit in one sense. But, you know, if, if I allowed the tree to just go on its own, it would not produce very good fruit. So what I'm doing is I'm spraying it sometimes. I'm doing this, that, and the other thing to make it produce the best fruit. In the same way, I think this is what Peter's saying about us. We can't really produce the fruit. But we can do things that prevent the fruit from... Uh, from, from being produced within our lives, and this is us giving into the passions of the flesh. He says the second thing here then. Not only should we abstain from the sinful desires, but he says this in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day that he visits us. So here's the second thing that he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's maybe a more literal rendering of the Greek. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Do that which is honorable in your society. And it's going to be interesting because what Peter does here in the verses that follow, he's actually going to talk about How wives relate to husbands and husbands to wives. He's going to talk about slaves relating to masters. He's going to talk about these societal relations and how a Christian who's been transformed by the Spirit ought to approach those relations. Why? Because he's talking about the the Christian witness. How should the church respond to the grace of God? to being called out, they should reject the passions that they used to live in. But they should also strive to keep their conduct in line with what is righteous and what is honorable among the Gentiles. And that second part's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because there are certain things that God does not call me to. I don't have to do. Uh, But that Perhaps my society thinks is honorable, and therefore I should do. So let's imagine that the Lord called uh, my family to some Middle Eastern country to proclaim the gospel. And so we move there. Would I have my wife wear a head covering? I would. I would. Not, be, not for any religious reasons, and in fact, a lot of people in Middle Eastern countries wear them not for religious reasons, it's just a social custom. Because what would it say about me if I said, no, my wife's going to go with her head uncovered? It would say, I don't care about the people. I don't care about their cultures. I don't care about their customs. And would it reflect well on the gospel? It wouldn't. So here, here's what Peter's saying. Not only do the things that are righteous and just, yes, but also you should embrace that which is culturally honorable for the sake of the gospel. And this this is just Paul's same principle that he says, um, I become like all men so that I might win some. So if I'm among the Jews, how do I live? Like a Jew. If I'm among the Gentiles, how do I live? Like a Gentile. And we can read that and we can say, oh, Paul, you're just like, you're a Pharisee, man. You're like living one way, you're living the other way. And he says, no, you've misunderstood me. I'm living among them as them because I love them. Right? But when I'm away from them, I'm living among another people. I love them too and I'm going to I'm going to honor them by doing the things that they do. And there's no there there's nothing hypocritical about that. It's actually sourced out of love. Hypocrisy is sourced out of uh, a lack of love actually, but that's sourced out of love. So Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Interestingly, this is really fascinating to me because notice he says among the Gentiles. Now that's not how the NIV translates it. It says uh, among the pagans. But the word here actually refers to Gentiles. And in the Old Testament, you had two categories of people: you had the Jews and the Gentiles. And here Paul or Peter is really securing us on the side of God's people rather than not God's people. So, why are we to do this? Why do we do the dual-sided command? Why do we reject our passions that we used to indulge in? Why do we embrace cultural norms as well as righteous norms? We do it, here's what he says, so that... Though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may nevertheless see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. So here's Peter's assumption that people will speak evil of you, that people are going to misunderstand you, and they're going to think the wrong things, and therefore they're going to say the wrong things about you. They're going to say that you're doing evil. Those Christians over there meeting in those secret meetings, you know what they're doing. And they're going to say things that aren't true. In fact, this is likely exactly what's been going on among the congregation. And the the Christians are losing honor in their society. And Peter says, here in this text, look, live honorably so that when they say such evil things about you, At the end of the day, when they get to know you, when they see what you actually do, they're ashamed that they spoke such words about you. And this is hard. This is hard. Uh, Because how do we normally respond to people who speak evil against us? I'm not the most gracious person when it comes to that sort of scenario, right? I, I, I don't feel you know, flowery thoughts. Um, But Peter says here, look, there's something more significant than your personal honor here. There's the honor of the name of Christ and they're going to speak evil against you and here's what I want you to do when they do. Live such good lives that when they look at you, they're ashamed that they said those things. I'm reminded of... uh, Uh, Truett Cathy. Anybody know who Truett Cathy is? If we were in Georgia, you'd all know who the guy is. Truett Cathy was the guy who founded um, Chick-fil-A. All right, so he uh, you're aware that a number of years ago, they got into this big controversy because of the homosexuality agenda. And though they, as a company, as an official company, never said a thing about it. Truett Cathy, as the owner, um, had given to some causes and that sort of thing. And so the whole business got um, got got accused uh, on that on that end. So Truett Cathy, he had uh, tickets to a big football game. And so he actually reached out to one of these uh, gr- homosexual groups, the president of that homosexual group, and said, hey, listen, I think we're misunderstanding each other. I've got these tickets. I'd love to, for you to come join me in this, at this football game. So the guy did. And I tell you what, if you go back and read that, that man's comments about his personal experience being with Truett Cathy, he said, look, I still totally disagree with this man, but this is a good man. And I thought, man, that's exactly what we need. Truett never, never backed off of his belief. He never said... I think that's sin, and I think you're harming yourself and others by means of that. He never backed off of those, but he lived such a good life in front of this man and showed such good character in front of this man that he nevertheless had to say, he's a good man. And I think this is what Peter's calling us to, and this becomes difficult and challenging, especially when we have people who misrepresent us so much. But... When it happens, live faithful lives. So how are we going to do this? Well, notice the things that he's going to say in the coming verses. We're going to have to close here in just a minute. But in the coming verses, what does he say? He says, when it comes to government, be the type of people who obey the government. When it comes to uh, relations in slavery. Now, oh boy, that's going to open some cans. So we'll talk about that next time. When it comes to slavery, be the type of slave who graciously submits to his master. When it comes to husband and wife relationships, model right husband-wife relationships between the community. Wives, follow the lead of your husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in a fully understanding way, showing honor to them. So he walks through the various relations we have in society, And he says, here's what unbelievers should say about you. They may be speaking evil against you and thinking evil against you, but when they see your relationships and when they see what you do in public, they should have to say, as much as I don't like that person, they really are a good person. (laughs) They're living honorably. And at the end of the day, here's what Peter says. Why should we do this and why is that important? Notice this that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What in the world does that mean? Now, some see this as a statement of judgment, that one day when God returns, um, they're going to have to admit that they were totally wrong. I actually don't think that's what he's saying here. I think instead he's reflecting Jesus in... Well, and notice what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do men light a candle and put it under a basket, but put it on the tabletop so that it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Peter's just going to the words of Jesus here. He's saying, here's what you ought to do. Live in society the right way, and that shows your good deeds and ultimately draws attention away from you to the one who's made you new. All right, so we'll talk about that the next time we come together, which apparently isn't next week because we we have the break week, uh, spring break. Anybody going to Florida or anything fun? I know, I know, I, I, I just, uh, I just uh, open some wounds around here. <laughs> All right, well, we'll see you in two weeks, Lord willing, uh, because it's spring break.